0: You're listening to audio from Mountain View Church, located in Murphy, North Carolina. If you'd like more information, you can find us at www.mtnvu.org or on Instagram and Facebook at Mountain View Church NC. Church, if this is your first time with us, my name's Mike. I'm one of the pastors here, and I want to offer you a special word of welcome. And I pray that the service this morning is a real encouragement to you. I want to highlight three things before we dive into the book of Exodus and wrap it up this morning. Number one, please come back tonight at 6 p.m. for our annual meeting and birthday celebration. I think you'll be really encouraged. We're going to highlight a lot of the ways that the Lord's at work here at Mountain View and really celebrate what he's done and what he's doing and uh, perhaps what's to come for us as we continue to walk through 2023. there will also be birthday cake and ice cream, so you won't want to miss that. So please come and join us for that. Secondly, as we finish up the book of Exodus, there are going to be at least two ways in the next few weeks for us to celebrate that together. A week from this coming Wednesday on March 29th at 6 p.m. right here in this room, we're going to do a night of worship. Psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. And it's all going to be surrounding the tabernacle. And I think uh, you'll be really, really blessed and encouraged if you come and participate in that. But we're essentially going to sing our way from the courtyard into the Holy of Holies. And so I'm really excited about enjoying that with you. And then uh, on the back of your sermon notes, you will find a schedule of events for Holy Week, which... It's hard to believe, but it is right around the corner. And I want to draw your attention specifically to the event happening on Wednesday, April the 5th. We are going to share in a traditional Passover Seder. Now, if you've never been part of one of those, you are in for a treat. It is going to be a wonderful meal, a wonderful evening of worship together, and just a wonderful evening of discovering together how every detail of Passover truly points to Christ. Now here's the thing though, we've got room for 80 folks. If you want to RSVP for that event, you'll need to do that immediately after the service on one of the iPads out there, okay? And we are very much looking forward to everything that God wants to teach us from Palm Sunday through Easter Sunday during Holy Week. All right, we are going to finish up the book of Exodus this morning, and we've been on this journey for a year. I don't know if you all realize that or not, but it was exactly one year ago today that we started this journey through Exodus. In fact, where we find the people of Israel in these last six chapters of the book is essentially one year. After they set up camp at Mount Sinai. In fact, they are on the verge of packing everything up and moving out into the wilderness and onto the promised land. Well, I'm not going to start by reading a particular portion of Exodus 35 through 40 this morning. What I want to do is highlight specific portions of these chapters as we finish out. The narrative. And the reason that we're kind of taking these six chapters together is much of the material that was presented in chapters 25 to 31 is actually repeated here. But whereas those chapters really contained the blueprints for the tabernacle, the furniture, the priestly garments, and so on and so forth, these chapters find the people of Israel actually following through on the command of the Lord to make all of these things. In some of the places, uh, it's repeated word for word from what was in those six chapters. So I want to pray for us before we dive in, and we'll just kind of work our way through some highlights from these chapters. Father, thank you this morning for the opportunity to dive into your word, and I pray as we work our way through these Last chapters of the book of Exodus, that you would give us something of a sense of what you are trying to say to us, what you want to say to us, if we will but receive it from this book that we've spent many, many months traveling through together. So be with us now and let us be encouraged, let us be challenged, let us be spurred on to love and good works as we put the book of Exodus aside after this week together. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Now look, truth be told, y'all, like I'm the type of person where we've spent a year in this together and I'm going, we have just scratched the surface. We're going to start over and we're going to do it all again. I'm just teasing. (laughs) I'm just teasing. That could be an amazing thing, though. Well, as we think about ending the book of Exodus I want you to know that ultimately this isn't the end of the story. This isn't the end of the story of Israel. This isn't the end of our story. And so, so what are some, some takeaways from these final chapters that I think will kind of help us sum up everything that we've walked through? The first one I want us to see out of chapter 35, beginning in verse 20. So if you've got your Bible, look with me there. And if you don't have a copy of, God's word, you'll find one underneath one of the seats in front of you. Exodus 35, beginning in verse 20. Then all the congregation of the people of Israel departed from the presence of Moses, and they came, everyone whose heart stirred him. Now, you can underline or highlight that phrase. And then the next one, everyone whose spirit moved him and brought the Lord's contribution to be used for the tent of meeting And for all of its service and for the holy garments, so they came, both men and women, all who were, again, here's that phrase, of a willing heart, brought brooches and earrings and signet rings and armlets, all sorts of gold objects, every man dedicating an offering of gold to the Lord, and everyone... Who possessed blue or purple or scarlet yarns or fine linen or goat's hair or tanned ram skins or goat skins brought them. Everyone who could make a contribution of silver or bronze brought it as the Lord's contribution. And everyone who possessed acacia wood of any use in the work brought it. And every skilled woman spun with her hands and all and they all brought what they had spun in blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen all the women whose hearts stirred them there's that phrase again to use their skill spun the goats hair and the leaders brought onyx stones and stones to be set for the ephod and for the breastpiece and spices and oil for the light and for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense all the men and women the people of Israel whose heart moved them to bring anything for the work that the Lord had commanded by Moses to be done brought it as a free will offering to the Lord now we're told here multiple times that the people brought everything needed to make the tabernacle its furnishings and the priestly garments willingly that they brought it out of a generous heart, which is exactly what God asked of them. You see, God's a different kind of master than Pharaoh was. Pharaoh exacted things from the people. He held it over them. And as a harsh taskmaster, he made them build him a house. But that's not the kind of king Yahweh is. Yahweh says, I want your hearts. I want you to willingly participate in this work that I've called you to do. In fact, beginning later on, we're told in chapter 36 that Moses had to assemble the people and tell them to stop giving. Because the construction team already had more than enough to build the tabernacle. Can you imagine a pastor standing before a congregation and saying to the people, Whoa, we've got enough! Y'all can hold off on the giving. Right? Well, look, here's the point. When you and I encounter the true and living God and experience His grace for ourselves... You and I can't help but become cheerful givers as a result. And ultimately, it all begins with encountering God for who he is. You'll notice, all right, chapters 25 to 31 highlight God giving the blueprints for the tabernacle and the priestly garments to Moses and then the narrative of the building of the tabernacle picks right back up again in chapter 35. But what's in between those two in chapters 32 and to 34? The making of the golden calf and God's reforging of the covenant that his people broke. Now remember, over the past few weeks, I've reminded you that they're down here at the bottom of the mountain waiting, awaiting what God is going to do with them. And how does God respond to their sin? He forgives them. He restores the covenant with them. And then how do His people respond? Out of willing and generous hearts. They give of their possessions, their material things. They give of their gifts and their time, and their skills in order to do exactly what the Lord commanded. Now, have you ever thought of God as generous? One of the five words we looked at last week in Genesis, in Exodus 34.6 means that God is essentially that. God has a generous spirit. Other scriptures indicate this too. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 7 and 8. Paul writes, In Him, meaning in Christ, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. Or Psalm 31 Nineteen. Oh, how abundant is your goodness, which you have stored up for those who fear you, and worked for those who take refuge in you in the sight of the children of mankind. Or Romans 8.32, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Do you believe God? Is generous? Do you believe God is abundantly gracious? You see, here's the thing, because we are sons and daughters of Adam and Eve, we carry around in our our hearts the same lie that convinced them to originally eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. God isn't good God isn't, God is stingy. God keeps the best for himself. At the root of so many of the lies we believe about God is this one. And the serpent knew exactly what he was doing. Striking at the very heart of God's character in this way. If you and I don't believe God is good, we will not trust God. If you and I do not believe that God's instructions are good for us, then we will not seek to obey his instructions. But what happens? What happens when grace gets hold of our hearts? When God's generous spirit begins to move about in the various rooms of our lives and set us free from this lie? Grace begets grace. Grace begets grace. You see it in the lives of the children of Israel. God had shown his people abundant grace in forgiving them and in reforging the covenant. And when Moses presents to them God's plan to come and dwell among them in this house, the people are more than ready to share their possessions, to share their lives, their skills, their experiences. They're more than ready to say, where do we sign up? Grace begets grace. Beholding the big heartedness of God begins to have its impact and effect on us. And in the end, isn't this what God is after. Not a people who serve him as the children of Israel once served Pharaoh, as cowering slaves under the heavy hand of a harsh taskmaster, but as servants who have been set free Into the kind of life that is truly life. The kind of life where our hearts willingly, joyfully, eagerly, and generously say yes to God. That's the kind of life that we as his people are invited into. The kind of life... That's demonstrated here in Exodus chapter 35 and into chapter 36 where in verse 6 we read, So Moses gave command, and word was proclaimed throughout the camp. Let no man or woman do anything more for the contribution for the sanctuary. So the people were restrained from bringing for the material they had was sufficient to do all the work and more. Is that you? Is that me? Is that us as a church? Do you and I have the kinds of hearts? Where we're not only willing to give of our material possessions, but we're willing to come to the table and say, because of God's great generosity to me, how can you use me? How can I sign up? What can I do to build up this body, this church that God has called all of us to be part of? Do we have willing hearts and then willing hands? As we journey away from the book of Exodus and we continue forward in God's Word and in our lives, we need to think about whether or not we are people of generous spirit, people who have experienced God's generous heart and then offer up ourselves for His use. Along the way, we also want to be obedient people because of God's grace at work in our lives. So flip over to chapter 39. Chapters 36, 37, and 38 are essentially chapters that detail the making of all of the furnishings for the tabernacle, the tabernacle itself, and the priestly garments. Oh, and let me tell you this, like, remember when we were walking through chapters 25 to 31, And the order seemed a little strange. In other words, the furnishings for the tabernacle were made first, and then the tent, and then the priestly garments. In other words, there was a theological order to the way that things were listed. Well, here, there's more of a chronological order. In other words, the tabernacle itself is constructed, then the furnishings for the tabernacle are constructed, and then the priestly garments. So you get to chapter 39, and beginning in verse 32, this is what we read. Thus all the work of the tabernacle of the tent of meeting was finished. And the people of Israel did according to all that the Lord had commanded Moses. So they did. Ten times, ten times. After that, or 10 times in chapter 39, we hear some version of that phrase, as the Lord commanded Moses. 10 times. Is that coincidental? No. How many words did God originally give to Moses to give to the people from atop Mount Sinai? Ten. Ten times we're told here that the people did exactly as Moses had commanded Yahweh. So, here we are. The covenant has been reforged by God. And the people are responding to the outpouring of God's mercy, His grace, His patience, His loyal love, and His faithfulness with fresh and full obedience. In other words... The text says that they did according to all that the Lord commanded Moses. They aren't cutting corners. They aren't receiving the plans for the tabernacle and determining for themselves how the plans might be adapted or improved upon. No, no, no. As the Lord commanded Moses. So the people made everything from the tent to the furnishings to the priestly garments, all of it made to specification in response to God's incredibly gracious renewal of his covenant with them. So now turn over to the very end of chapter 39. Verse 20 is essentially reiterated In verse 42. According to all that the Lord had commanded Moses, so the people of Israel had done all the work. And Moses saw the work. Now this is important. Moses saw the work and behold, they had done it. As the Lord commanded, so had they done it. Then Moses blessed them. Now you know your Bible and you know the book of Genesis, verse 43 is like this little hyperlink connected right back to the beginning of Genesis chapter 2, where God saw all the work that he had done and he pronounced it what? Very good. In other words, he blessed Creation. What does Moses do here? Moses looks at all of the work that the people of God have completed. The text says Moses saw the work, and behold, they had done it as the Lord had commanded. So they did it, and Moses did what? Blessed them. Moses saw that it was good. And Moses blessed the people of God. The people received Moses' blessing just as the original creation received God's blessing. It's like this this little hint that what God is doing here at the end of the book of Exodus is presenting to us something of a new creation people. A new creation, people among whom he is going to dwell, in some sense, just like he did when he lived with Adam and Eve in the garden. And look, this whole scene, this whole scene is consistent with what the people are told some 40 years later when they are finally on the cusp of entering the promised land. Deuteronomy chapter 28 says, and if you faithfully Obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all his commandments that I command you today. The Lord God will set you high above all the nations of the earth, and all these what? Blessings shall come upon you and overtake you if you obey the voice of the Lord your God. It's also consistent with what the author of Psalm 1, verses 1 and 2 writes. blessed. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Deuteronomy is filled with this language of blessing and cursing related to the covenant that God has established with his people If the people of Israel will listen to the voice of Yahweh and obey him, they will enjoy the blessings of the covenant. If they do not listen to the voice of Yahweh and they disobey him, they will endure the curses of the covenant. God's promise to them will always be true, and in the blessings and in the curses, they will experience the faithfulness of God to the promises of the covenant. So that means the opposite is true. If they choose to bow down to the gods of their neighbors, once they settle in the land of promise, they will forfeit the blessings of the covenant. And they will endure its curses. In effect, like Adam and Eve, and Moses says this in the book of Deuteronomy, like Adam and Eve, they will choose death rather than what? Life. So where does that leave you and me is the blessing of God connected to obedience yeah that's a problem you agree that's a problem because Paul writes in Romans chapter 3 for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. If it's obedience that secures the blessings of the covenant and you and I haven't obeyed, what do we deserve? Death. What's the answer? Oh, man, y'all are good this morning. (laughs) Yes. Listen, listen. This makes what the Apostle Paul writes in Ephesians 1 come to life. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us. How? In Christ. With every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. How many blessings are there for you if you are in Christ? All of them all of them. Why? Because Christ is the obedient son. Christ is the covenant keeping son. Christ is the one into whom all of us are grafted by faith. And his perfect obedience becomes our righteousness and all that belongs to him by faith we receive. Because we have received every spiritual blessing in Christ, let us now make every effort to walk in obedience to Christ. This this is, in a sense, how Paul structures many of his letters. We're gonna see this when we get to the book of Ephesians. Chapters one through three, put before us this incredible gospel truth about who Jesus is, what he's done, and what the implications are for you and me. And then when you hit the second half of the book in chapters 4 through 6, you find, okay, so now what does it look like to live this out? The book of Romans is structured the exact same way. Chapters 1 through 11 are profound, massive gospel truth. And chapter 12 begins with the word what? Therefore, in view of God's mercies, live like this. We are God's truly new creation people who have received, the spirit of life, that you and I might now choose to walk in the path of life rather than the path of death. This is what Paul writes of in Titus chapter 2 beginning in verse 11, for the grace of God, the generosity of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us, to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives right here and right now, in this present age, as we wait for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who has already given himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Look, underneath Paul's language in those verses is a lot of the ideas we've talked about in the book of Exodus. This whole idea of redemption. The people of God were redeemed through the blood of a lamb out of slavery in Egypt. You and I have been redeemed by the blood of God's spotless lamb, his son, Jesus Christ. And we've been redeemed out of a life of idolatry and lawlessness and into relationship with the living God, his spirit having been given to us that we might now walk in obedience to Christ. To be a new creation people in a world that is passing away. Along the way, we, we want to be people of generous spirit, gracious people who have received grace, and we respond to God's grace by saying, Lord, whatever you want from me, Lord, I want to be obedient to you. Along the way, we also want to be really clear that as we, as we seek to live these things out, these things aren't dependent upon us, okay? Okay. We, we want to be Jesus-dependent people. Now look at chapter 40, beginning in verse 16. Real quick, verse 2 says, On the first day of the first month, Yahweh says to Moses, You shall erect the tabernacle of the tent of meeting. And then in verse 16, we read, this Moses did. According to all that the Lord commanded him, so he did. In the first month of the second year, on the first day of the month, the tabernacle was erected. Moses erected the tabernacle. And it goes on to detail how he did that. But it's significant to this idea of new creation that it is in the first month of the second year on the first day of the month. The children of Israel have essentially been here at this mountain for a year. And the work is completed. Moses is erecting the tabernacle and he's putting into place everything that God made. Now here's the significant thing. Seven times we're told that Moses did just as Yahweh commanded him. We're told that in verse 19 of chapter 40. We're told that in verse 21. We're told that in verse 23, 25, 27, 29. And then again in verse 32, And then in verse 33, it says, and he erected the court around the tabernacle and the altar and set up the screen of the gate of the court. So Moses finished the work. Same word, same kind of phrasing as we saw in chapter 39, pointing right back to Genesis chapter 2, which we're told there that God finished the work of creation. Now, the beginning of John's gospel being so similar to Genesis 1 as it is, is an indication that through Jesus Christ, God is going to do a new thing. In fact, he's going to create a new people through his son, which is what the Lord Jesus is doing in the process of building his church. And look, let's be really clear. He's the one doing it. He's the one building his church. Now, to make the direct connection to Exodus chapter 40, throughout the book of Exodus, Moses is a type of Christ. He's a picture. He's there to show us, to give us hints and clues of who the Lord Jesus is going to be and the things that he's going to accomplish when he comes. And so because we are told here that it is Moses who erects the tent and puts everything in place just as God commanded, it should cause us to remember the Lord Jesus when he said to his disciples, I will what? Build my church and the gates of hell they will not prevail against it. Now let's, let's pause for just a second right there, okay? Like a lot of times people think that the church is on the defensive, but that's not what Jesus says. Jesus says that the church carrying the gospel of the kingdom into the world is on the what? Offensive. And the kingdom of darkness shall not prevail against the church as it goes forth with the gospel of the kingdom to proclaim that Jesus Christ is Lord. In other words, he's the one building his church. And because he's the one building his church, the kingdom of darkness will not prevail against it. That means you and I are to be dependent on Him and His gospel. The church grows as people come to Christ, as people surrender to Christ, as people together become more like Christ, and all of this in the power of the Holy Spirit. Sure, we all contribute. 1 Corinthians chapters 12 through 14. Makes that really, really clear. We've been given gifts of grace that we might partner with God in a sense in this great passion project of his. We all contribute. Even Paul acknowledges this in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 5 through 9. But notice what he also says. What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is really anything, but ultimately it's about God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one And each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are all God's fellow workers. You are God's field. You are God's building. How would you like to have a job where you have absolutely no control over the results? How would you like to have a job where at the end of the day you can pour all of your time, all of your energy, all of your hopes, all of your dreams, all of your prayers, all of your blood, sweat, and tears into it, and you can't control what happens? That's the kind of job I have. It is. You ever realize that? I have no control over what happens. In your hearts, in your lives, nothing. <laughs> now, <laughs> that, that, James is back there laughing. Because, like, look, look, that can be incredibly discouraging. <laughs> Or it could be incredibly encouraging. I I don't think it should discourage us. I think it should encourage us. And not only should it encourage us, it should fuel our desire to pray that the Lord would do among us and in the churches of our community what only he can do. It should encourage us to pray. If the Lord Jesus is the one who builds his church, prayer should absolutely fuel everything we undertake. Prayer should be the engine of Mountain View Church as we look to Christ to build his church and we look to partner with him in what I call his passion project. And it is his passion project. And you better believe that the work he's doing in his churches must be done by his spirit if it's going to have any eternal impact. You know, it's so easy to be a fill-in-the-blank dependent church. And we constantly have to fight against it. We constantly have to fight against it in our Sunday services, in our small groups, in our Bible studies, in our student ministry, in our children's ministry, on our staff team, on our elder team, on our deacon team, on our connection team, our worship team, our prayer team, and our missions team. It's so easy to fall prey to the idea that it depends on us, at least in part, and not on Jesus who said, I will build my church. Not only should it encourage us to pray, it should encourage us to persevere. After that incredible chapter in 1 Corinthians 15 on the resurrection of Christ, how does Paul close things out. In 1 Corinthians 15:58 he says, Therefore my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. as we seek to move forward together. We want to ask the Lord to do such a work of grace in us that we become gracious people as a result, generous people even, with our hearts and our resources and our lives. We want to surrender to Christ because of all He's done for us and seek to live out a life of obedience. We want to be dependent upon Him in everything. And along the way, we... We want to be a people who lean forward rather than look backward. Now, we've come a long way in the book of Exodus. When we first started this book a year ago, we met a suffering people who were languishing under the evil, oppressive hand of Pharaoh, a people who were crying out to God in hopes that he would hear them and help them. And that's just what he did. He rescued them with a mighty outstretched arm. He redeemed them from slavery. And a new nation was birthed when they passed through the waters of the Red Sea. In the desert, Yahweh formally introduced himself to them in a real and personal way and taught them on that Short, month-long journey between Egypt and Sinai. What it meant to trust him. He, He gave them a crash course in faith by providing sky bread and clean water. And then he brought them to the mountain. He brought them to the mountain and he met them there. And he called them into this covenant relationship with himself. He gave them the gift of his instructions, real clarity, for their everyday lives, meant to help them live out the details of this new relationship. And now, on the other side of the golden calf debacle, they have experienced his mercy. A mercy which is propelling them forward into a new obedience. Here's the deal though. We have already seen them look back to Egypt with longing in their eyes and it will happen again in the book of Numbers. They will grumble And they will complain about the manna. They will voice their discontent all over again. Wishing that they were back in Egypt, back in chains, back in slavery. After all, the food there was really, really good. But here at the end of the book of Exodus, God has come to live among them. And he is calling them into life with him. Life in pursuit of him. He's calling them to leave Egypt behind. They are soon, within a matter of weeks, if not one or two months, to pack up and leave this place. On the way to the land of promise. And God is calling them to follow him by faith. He is present with them. He will lead them. He will give them what he has promised. He will rule over them with wisdom and goodness, grace and justice. The way that the book of Exodus ends is incredibly significant. You know, a lot of the movies that depict this story tend to end or climax at the point at which Moses receives the Ten Commandments and comes down the mountain. But the end of the book of Exodus is actually the climax. God, God had plans all along to make these his people and to come and live among them. And in verse 34 of chapter 40, this is how the book ends. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Strangely enough, Moses wasn't able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle throughout all their journeys. Whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out till the day that it was taken up. For the, Lord, the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day and a fire was in it by night in the sight of all of the house of Israel throughout all of their days. That's how the book of Exodus ends. With God finally coming off the mountain to live among his precious people. And certainly it's a foreshadowing of what the entire biblical story is headed toward. Certainly we await the day the prophet Habakkuk sees in the distant future, the day that God's filling of the tabernacle foreshadows. Habakkuk 2.14 says, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Certainly, this is the same day that the Apostle John speaks of in Revelation 21 when he says that heaven will come down and the people of God will dwell with their God. He will be their God. They will be his people and they will be with him forever. In the meantime, in the meantime, God is calling us, just like he called the children of Israel, to move forward with him. To recognize not only is he here among us, but he is within us because of the work of the Lord Jesus who made that possible. And like the apostle Paul God is calling us to devote our energies to his kingdom, to keep our eyes on him, to cultivate a longing for the day that you and I will see the Lord Jesus face to face. The end of the book of Exodus is not the end of the story. But it points forward to the end of the story. In Philippians chapter 3, verses 13 and 14, the Apostle Paul says, Brothers, I do not consider that I've made it my own, but one thing I do. Forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Friends, Egypt is in the rearview mirror. You have been set free. If you are a child of God who is hidden by faith in Jesus Christ the righteous one, and you have been set free into a relationship with God, where the very Spirit of God, the very presence of God that came down and filled the tabernacle lives inside you, me, and us. We could easily read the end of Exodus this way. Throughout all of our journeys, beginning in verse 36. Wherever we go, Wherever God leads us, the Spirit of God dwells within us. By day we are led, by night we are led. No matter where our journeys take us, the Lord Jesus is among us. So let us now leave Egypt behind. Let us look forward to the great eternal land of promise. And let's live by faith. As obedient people, as grateful people, as Jesus-dependent people, let's pray. Father, thank you for the opportunity you've given us this morning to look at your word. God, I do indeed pray that as we move forward from the book of Exodus, that we would never, ever, ever, ever forget the freedom that was purchased for us through the shed blood of our beloved Savior, Jesus Christ. And that the increasing experience of your grace and your generosity toward us in Him would enable us to become the kinds of people who Say, God, what a joy, what a privilege just to give it all to you. What a joy, what a privilege to receive your commands and to seek to walk in obedience to them. What a joy, what a privilege to be part of this thing that you're building called the church. May we be dependent upon you. May we use our gifts to bless this body you've made us part of. What what a joy, what a joy to know that Egypt is in the past. What a joy to know what awaits us. What a joy to walk with you right here and right now in the present. Lord, it's one thing to get through Exodus. It's another thing to get Exodus through us. Holy Spirit of God, may seeds have been planted over this past year that take root and that grow and bear fruit in the months and years to come. Man, we just ask all these things in the name of Christ Jesus, our Savior. Amen. Let's stand and sing to the Lord.